Good evening, everyone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come now to the ministry of your word and the sermon, you will open our hearts and ears and hearts and our minds, and that in the power of your Holy Spirit, you will use this word to renew our minds so that our lives may be transformed and that we may be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight I'm taking the first psalm, and there are just six verses, and the title I give my talk tonight is The Secret to Happiness. The Secret to Happiness. Ask anybody what they want most in life, and the answer always comes down to this one thing, and it is the word happiness. Whatever way you frame the question, and whatever way they frame the answer, it comes down to that one thing. Happiness. And there is a lot of literature from the world on this subject. And they are usually formulaic. 25 secrets to happiness, 10 secrets to success, 25 ways to the perfect life, and so on and so forth. And not surprisingly, many people are slaves to such snake oil salesmen. Year in and year out, new publications hit the market. The consumers don't ever seem to get enough even though they are not getting the success and happiness promised them. Many parts of the church are not to be outdone in this money-spinning industry. You know the word of faith movement? It has likewise produced many snake oil salesmen who pluck scripture verses out of context to sell happiness and success. Benny Hinn, one of them, recently recanted his position. You may have seen that on YouTube. If you haven't, Google it tonight and you'll find him there uh, recanting basically what he's done. And many prosperity teachers and preachers and well-being theologians appealing more to psychology and humanism have made vast fortunes off the back of their deceived congregations and audiences. I won't name names. I'm sure you know them. But the Bible's teaching on success and happiness is far removed from the psychology and the humanistic principles peddled by the world and the false church. And that is as it should be because the world's understanding of success and happiness is very different from the truth. There are many portions of scriptures that teach on success and happiness and how to find them. Joshua 1.8 is one of them, and it says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Matthew 7, 13 to 14 is another, and it says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. That's a successful one. And the parables of the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 13 are all about the same uh, talk of happiness and success, uh, how we attain it and what it means for us. And so too is Psalm 1, which is the subject of my ministry tonight. Psalm 1 is a classic 
and simple presentation on the secret of happiness. It uses two people to make the presentation. There is first the godly person, and there is secondly the ungodly person. The godly person is described as righteous, blessed, or happy. He is compared to a tree planted by streams of water, and his happiness is ongoing from now to eternity. The ungodly person, on the other hand, is described as wicked, unrighteous, and doomed to perish. He is compared to to chaff, which the wind drives away. His doom is ongoing from now on to eternity. Both persons, their ways, their conduct, their fortunes, and their end are contrasted, placed side by side, viewed side by side, weighed side by side, but they are never at any time merged into one. Let's take, first of all, the godly man or the godly woman who is happy and blessed. In verses 1 to 3, I'll take it one at a time. It says, blessed is a man. Let's take that word first, the word blessed is in the plural, in the original. So you can render it blessednesses. It's a multiplicity of blessings. And why is this man blessed? It is because of what he does do and what he doesn't do. Two categories in verses 1 to 3. Firstly, we see what he does not do. It says he does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. This is where it all begins. A person's life is always based on what he or she believes. Here he takes the first step by refusing to identify with the counsel of the wicked. And counsel refers to the thinking that governs the outlook and the life of the person. It is the worldview, the ideology or philosophy of the person. It is the totality of what he or she believes and which forms and shapes their values. It is the source of behavior patterns, attitudes, habits, and responses. And this counsel of the wicked is not from God. So it is not divine. Rather, it is founded on human wisdom under the influence of Satan, the God of this world. And so it is earthly, it is unspiritual, and it is demonic, as it says in James chapter 3. For example, in a previous worldview, in a previous way of thinking, or you might say in a previous counsel, sexual morality was given high priority in the culture. So the sins of fornication, adultery, cohabitation, unbiblical divorce, same-sex activity were frowned upon not only in the church, but also in the culture. But the opposite is now the case. In a postmodern age, the new thinking or the new counsel, where truth is personal and relative and where everything is being redefined to suit the new worldview. The role of the sexes, you know, has already been redefined. Where the Bible teaches that male and female are complementary halves of one whole, and with complementary roles in the one whole, feminists have rejected that and redefined it. And even the church has accepted that, unfortunately. Now, marriage has become the latest victim of a new way of thinking, of a new council, and its culture of redefinition. But it is okay when the world does that, because the world is in the power of Satan, the God of this world. But when the church, under pressure from the world, and without a shred of biblical warrant, and even worse, in a indirect defiance of the clear command of the Bible, 
decides to abandon the word of the kingdom of God, to walk in the counsel of the wicked, to enlist in the choir of the kingdom of the world, and to sing the chorus of redefinition, then we have forfeited any claim to the blessednesses of the godly person. Now, usually when a believer is caught up in that kind of counsel, and one of the things you hear, for instance, today is the gospel is about radical inclusivity, which is a complete nonsense because it isn't so in the scriptures, and there is no biblical basis for that at all. But when a believer is caught up in that, we know that they are spiritual infants, and we patiently correct them. But when the church is itself caught up in what is fashionable and begins to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, like a leaf in the wind, it calls for lamentation for its spiritual immaturity and the apostasy that surrounds it. Number two, the godly person does not stand in the way of sinners, it says. And this is the next step in the way of the wicked. First, the wicked walks with them. Secondly, he stands with them. He's getting more comfortable with the people that he's walking with in the ideology or the worldview of the counsel that he's learning and agreeing with that way of thinking. But a godly person rejects this. Number three, he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. And this is the final step in the journey of the wicked. A lot of commentators we look at those three categories as a declension. So this becomes the final step in the journey of the wicked in his ungodliness. He joins himself completely to them and their cause in complete loyalty and commitment. He is settled in, comfortable, he's a friend of the cause, he's a beneficiary of the cause, and he's a promoter of the cause. He sits in their cheer. It's pretty much like uh, taking a season ticket for a football team. And that's where you peg yourself, that's where you pitch your tent. But a godly person does not take the seat of scoffers. He will not be found in the company of scoffers. He will not identify with such people. He will not. Now let us see what a godly man does. We've seen what he doesn't do. What does he do? One, he says in verse two, his delight is in the law of the Lord. His whole joy is in the word of God. He delights in it. He cares for it. He relishes and cherishes it. Because the word of God gives him his knowledge of himself and the world. He doesn't get it anywhere else. It gives him knowledge of life here on earth and life in eternity. The word of God also gives him his knowledge of God and his dealings with man and his creation. And it is this knowledge from the word of God which forms and shapes his own worldview, his values, philosophy, and his theology. Notice, not ideology, because that's political. So his worldview is from God. It is heavenly. It is divine. It is spiritual. He sees as God sees. He thinks as God thinks. And we may say he thinks Christianly. And that is something that is becoming rarer and rarer in the church today. Number two, what does he do? He meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. That's not surprising because he delights in it. Psalm 119 
verse 24 says, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. If you delight in something, you will meditate on it. And if you meditate on it, you will delight even more in it. And Charles Spurgeon says, The law of the Lord is the daily bread of the true believers. So the great blessing to the person, the godly person in his meditation, her meditation is that they are able to discern what is godly from what is not. They are able to test whatever they hear, whether from outside in the world or from within the church. First John chapter 4 verse 1 says, test every spirit, test them. When the godly person reads or hears anything, he or she asks, is this godly or ungodly? Is this earthly or heavenly? Is this divine or demonic? Is this spiritual or unspiritual? And how does he or she know the answer? By asking the ultimate question, coming back to the reference point, is this in accordance with the word of God or not? All true Christian discernment is based on the knowledge of the word of God. Second Timothy chapter 2 verse 15 talks about rightly dividing the word of truth. And this is why the godly person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit on the seat of the scoffers. And this is precisely what we find Christ doing throughout his earthly ministry. Amongst many quotations, in John chapter 5 verse 30, Christ says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In the temptation in the wilderness, we see Christ walking according to the scripture, using the scripture as the basis of his interaction with and responses to Satan. And even when the devil quotes from the Bible, Christ is not deceived. He rightly divides the word and knows that Satan is misusing and abusing scripture. He has plucked the text out of context to say what he wants to say, not what God actually says in the text. And that again is precisely what he did with Peter. When Peter would not tolerate the idea of Christ dying on the cross. And he says to Peter, get behind me Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God. But on the things of man. Christ identified the source of Peter's words. And quickly told him off. And says to him, you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man, meaning your idea is not from God. It's actually demonic. It's based on the wisdom of man and influenced by Satan. So get behind me, Satan, he says to Peter. And I have to say that we have far too many programs around in the church today that have this very character. They are packaged and highlighted with a verse of scripture, two verses of scripture appended, and then sold to the church as godly, and biblical. I was in one of our churches not too long ago, and in one of the notice boards I saw an advert there, and it says, Biblical Yoga. Astonishing. Can you have biblical paganism? Impossible. It's a contradiction in terms. But that's in one of our churches because of lack of discernment. So what we've seen what the godly man does not do, and we've seen what the godly man does do, or man or woman. Now let us see the result. And it says in verse 3, he is like a tree 
planted by rivers of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, it prospers. That's a short and picturesque summary of his blessings or her blessings or blessednesses of their success or their happiness. Jeremiah chapter 17, 7 and 8 says the same thing. It says, blessed is a man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. There's too much there, I don't have the time to unpack it. But that simply is saying, I mean, it's a picture of the success, of the happiness, of the blessings, or the blessednesses of the godly man, the godly woman. Now come to the ungodly person. From verses 4 to 6, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. Here is another picture summarizing the unblessednesses, if I may use that word, of the ungodly. The wicked are not like the wicked, he says. They are not like the tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. No, the wicked are not like that at all. They are not like the godly. They do not have the blessednesses of the godly because they have no life at all. They are like chaff that a wind drives away. They are spiritually dead, worthless, of no account. There is nothing good in them to bring them into redemption. They are witless. It is an agricultural language, of course. When you sift your wheat, you toss it in the air in the direction of the wind as it did back in those days. Everything goes up, but not everything returns to your bowl. While it's all up in the air, the wind moves through the whole lot and carries with it the weightless stuff. And what is left is the wheat. It falls back into the bowl. It cannot be carried away with it by the wind. But the chaff, in all its weightlessness and worthlessness, cannot withstand the wind. It is carried and driven away. And beloved, this is a picture of judgment here. The final judgment, a day of separation of the unrighteous from the righteous. Like the chaff. The unrighteous will not stand the test of the wind of judgment when it comes. It will be caught up in the wind and driven away because no one can stand before God without righteousness. That's what the Bible teaches. And so, enough of the modern or contemporary indulgence that humanity is naturally good and that on the basis of that goodness, it can work its way by its own merit and get into heaven. And so, we have a popular teaching today, and it's popular in our churches, which is very unfortunate. But if you're good, you go to heaven without Christ. That's one of what one of the members of my churches, earlier on when I got here, told me. That that's what they've been taught. I said, that's rubbish. It's unbiblical. You cannot be good enough to go to heaven. You need Christ. Without Christ, you cannot. It is not taught anywhere in the Scriptures. It is the same old Pelagian heresy now reinvented by the modern man. That a man has enough good in him or her, a woman has enough good in her to make their way to heaven uh, without Christ. We don't have that in scriptures. Now, let's gather up the threads of our thoughts tonight. We have a picture of what it is to be blessed. 
or you may call it the secret of happiness. And what we have seen, beloved, does not at all resemble what we are bombarded with every day, splashed out in colorful ads on TV, magazines, newspapers, billboards, internet, and all that. Many of them point to a lot of things we can do on the physical, exercise, diet, gardening, holidays, and even spirituality, by which they mean Eastern mysticism, New Age practices like yoga, which I mentioned before, Eastern meditation, which is a complete opposite of Christian meditation, mindfulness, it's the rage today, and nature worship, hugging trees and finding God in every leaf on the tree, and every bird that sings and flies past, etc. But how many of us will point to this term and tell them, if you want to be happy, here is a secret. To start with, they do not understand what happiness is. And the dictionary does not understand it either, and defines it wrongly based on human wisdom. And so people are looking for the wrong thing from the start. And secondly, even that which they do understand as happiness is unattainable because it's just not there. It is an illusion. So they are chasing after an illusion. Elizabeth Taylor, whom you all know from the many films that she acted, her beauty, her diamonds, her many marriages, and so many other things, and her wealth, she said this, God knows I have tried. I have tried fame, food, men, drugs, and drink, five, but I have never found peace. And as she looked at her sleeping mother on her deathbed, she said sadly, maybe death is the only peace. Elvis Presley, to give you another example, whom you also know very well, the great singer of the 60s and 70s, he was asked by a reporter six weeks before he died, Elvis, when you started playing music, you said you wanted three things in life. You wanted to be rich, you wanted to be famous, and you wanted to be happy. Are you happy, Elvis? And Elvis replied, no, I am as lonely as hell. And Elvis was, was at the height of his success. He was rich, he was famous. But the third thing, the happiness, he didn't have it. So chasing happiness outside of Christ is a total illusion. It's impossible. And I did that once. I don't have the time to tell that story. Now, notice that right here, as everywhere else in the Bible, we are taught that there are only two kinds of people and two kinds of outcomes. And that they are always held in sharp contrast one to another. There is no meeting point between them. You have the godly and the ungodly. You have the righteous and the unrighteous. You have the blessed and the wicked. You have life and death. You have holy and unholy. Obedient and disobedient. Redemption and judgment. Commended and condemned. Reward and punishment. And heaven and hell. It's all black and white. No shades. No shadows. No grace, no nuances. The scripture clearly teaches that this differentiation is important and that it is no discrimination. But contemporary culture and the contemporary church doesn't like these boundaries. It hurts them and has taken up a deadly campaign against them to erase the boundaries. And in the name of equality, 
to create pluralities, to accommodate every view, every whim, every nuance. Contemporary culture says everyone is fine and okay in their skin. And you can have a million and one views, that's fine, that's yours. But of course that's until it clashes with theirs. And they who demand tolerance are not prepared themselves to tolerate others. But in fact, the plain teaching of scripture is that God offers just the one way and it is both exclusive and also excluding. It is exclusive of every other way that claims access to God and it excludes all who will not accept the only way that God has given. So the idea that plurality Inclusivity is scriptural. That there are many valid roads to God is a lie from the pit of hell. And to teach that, as many do today, sadly, not only outside of the culture, but also in the church, is to become a minister of Satan, as the Bible says. Not a minister of Jesus Christ, who plainly said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Secondly, on the back of our first observation that there are only two kinds of people and two kinds of outcome, let us also notice still the sharp differences between them. They have two different preoccupations, one delighting in the word of God and the other delighting in the ways of Satan. They have two different kingdoms, one belonging to the kingdom of God and the other belonging to the kingdom of the world. They have two different masters, one belonging to Christ and the other belonging to Satan, the devil. They have two different fortunes. One is rooted and fruitful like the tree by the rivers of water, and the other is unstable and unfruitful like the chaff that is driven away by the wind. They have two different languages, one with the language of obedience to the word of God, and the other with the language of rebellion to God. And they have two different destinations. One, the godly person to heaven, and the ungodly person to hell. The central message of the entire Bible is summarized in this psalm. Thirdly, we find here in this psalm the very important foundational doctrine of the sufficiency of scriptures. This is now almost a lost doctrine to the church. Almost lost to the church. Although some people believe in the inspiration of scripture, And they accept it, one degree or the other, as the word of God. Very few people now believe that the word of God is also sufficient. Largely due to ignorance and wrong teaching. The inspiration of scriptures and the sufficiency of scriptures are two separate things, but they go hand in hand. If you accept the inspiration and deny the sufficiency, you are actually denying also the inspiration of scriptures. Now the godly man or the woman in some one is made a complete person, fully acceptable to stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, strictly on the basis of his her relationship with the word of God. That's all. He delights in it. He meditates in it day and night. He discerns the truth from it and is able to walk a holy path away from the counsel of the wicked, away from the way of sinners, away from the seat of scoffers, 
And so he or she is established, rooted, and prosperous like a tree planted and nourished by streams of water. The word of God is sufficient for the godly person. And again, I have to observe here that there are far too many programs and schemes and strategies in the church today that simply point to our distrust of the sufficiency of the word of God. We do not believe that the word of God is sufficient. So we think that we need to embellish it, give it supplements to offer additional nutrients to help it. How thoroughly presumptuous of us, if not downright arrogant, to think that we can help the word of God to the point where we think we are defending the word by offering a soft, watered-down version of the gospel that is acceptable and pleasing to the world. Luther said, the word of God is like a lion. You do not need to defend it. Let it lose. Just let the lion lose. It will take care of itself. And all healthy churches know that whatever happens there, the pr- prosperity of the word of God there, I mean the, the, the growth of the church, it is the work of the word. Nothing else. Finally, because the word is sufficient, we see also that it is the sole determining factor in the life of everyone. To embrace it is to succeed. To reject it is to fail. And we see clearly that it is the high point of a godly person's life. It is his delight. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It is a primary quality and determining factor in his life. The relationship between each person and God is determined by the relationship that each person has with God's word. There is no other way you can work that out. To live in the word, like the godly person, is to live close to God. But to live outside the word, like the ungodly person, is to live far from God in rebellion and disobedience. But today, closeness to God is viewed by many people as an emotional thing, a feeling. The more that I feel, the more that I experience emotional feelings, the closer I am to God. That's the logic, the thinking. And so very often we find in our churches, wanting, uh, we want to manufacture and manipulate emotions and moods and feelings, and we find people craving and embracing anything that tends to promote that. I must let you know, beloved, as a former pagan myself, that that is exactly what pagans do. In my days as a pagan, we used alcohol, we used heavy music, and we used intoxicated dancing to induce that rapturous feeling and to produce that warm, fuzzy mood and to create ecstasy and a vague, mystical illusion that we had somehow connected with God. Yes, there was some connection made. We felt it. But it was with demons, not with God. We are close to God when we receive his word and obey him. When we delight in his word, when we meditate on his word day and night. That can neither be manufactured nor manipulated. Beloved, Let's look at those two people again as we begin to come to an end. Both men, the godly and the ungodly, wanted a good life. Both men 
wanted to prosper. Both men wanted success and happiness. And also the secret to achieving these. But only one man, just one of the two, actually succeeds. The ungodly one follows the counsel of the wicked, stands in the way of sinners, and sits in the seat of scoffers. But the godly man takes a completely different path. The opposite. He turns away from the emptiness and poverty of the values and wisdom and ideologies and philosophies of the worldviews followed by the ungodly. He turns instead to the law of the Lord and delights in the word of God, meditates in it regularly and obeys the teachings that he finds there and he becomes successful like a tree planted by rivers of water. His success is a product of the word of God. And so for him, he finds that the scripture is sufficient. Exactly as the scripture says of itself in First, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to him, to his own glory and excellence. The knowledge of him. Nothing else. Let me bring this to a close by simply highlighting the danger of the paradox that we find ourselves in as a church that is in the world and sadly today has become off the world. The wicked man is the one who rejects the word of God. He underestimates his fallenness, his spiritual bankruptcy, his utter helplessness, and his total hopelessness. It is like a drowning man who doesn't know that he is drowning. And that is almost impossible to imagine because a drowning man will know by reflex, intuitively, that he is drowning and cry out for help very quickly. But that is a human condition. He must be awakened to his own danger before he will be awakened to his vulnerability and need for rescue. Now, this is where I'm coming. Think for a moment of that drowning man trying to teach you who are in a boat sailing safely how to stay afloat in the water. Whilst he himself is drowning. It's a complete impossibility. And you may say it's absolutely preposterous. Yes, that's true. And I would probably add absolutely presumptuous. But beloved, that is exactly what the world is doing to the church. That is what Satan has always programmed his ministers, his servants, his followers to do to the church. In all the past centuries of church history, whenever we see the church, you know, humbled by the enemy, that's what has happened. When Luther single-handedly rose up in the power of the Holy Spirit against the medieval church. And there was no power as strong then as the medieval church. And he stood against the church. He did that because the church had become not a church of God, but a church of man. Infiltrated by ministers of Satan and doing a lot of havoc 
and a place that's supposed to be the house of God. Beloved, when the church speak, when the world speaks to the church, it's like a drowning man trying to teach somebody who is safe on the waters how to stay afloat when he himself is drowning. It's completely preposterous and presumptuous. And so you have a fallen world, a world that is spiritually bankrupt, a world that is under the thumb of the devil who is the god of this world, a world that is itself in need of rescue on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you have a holy church planted in the world by the Spirit of the Lord as the alternative kingdom to rescue people from the clutches of Satan and bring them into the kingdom of God. Yet the world dares to teach the church how it ought to operate. Oh, pity the church that listens. And what a pity indeed that far too many parts of the contemporary church today are listening. And borrowing all that the world is suggesting to them. And accepting them and bringing them into the churches. What do you not have in the church today? Yoga. I mean, name it. All the practices, New Age practices. Name them. Eastern mysticism. It's all there. Go to their homes. And what do you find? Boss of the Buddha. In a Christian home. I've seen far too many for comfort. We are listening too much to the world. And the only reason that a church would listen to the world is because the church hasn't followed the godly man or the godly person into delighting in the word of God and meditating in it day and night and accepting the word of God as sufficient. They have instead been deceived into thinking that they can use the ungodly ways of the kingdom of the world to build the kingdom of God. Beloved, we, we have a choice to make. We can follow the ungodly man into a life that is outside the word of God and which will end in chaff being driven, driven by the wind in eternal judgment and punishment and which many, I'm sorry to say, I'm very sad to say, both individuals and churches have chosen. Far too many have chosen that. Not outside in the world, in the church. Or we can follow, and this is the only other option, we can follow the godly man into the word of God and delight in it. And meditate in it day and night and depend on its sufficiency. If Christ says, I will build my church, we need to believe that. And act in that light of what he says. And then we will be like a tree planted by rivers of water. And we'll arrive at our destination, standing before God in His righteousness. The righteousness of His unfailing and all-sufficient Word. We cannot have both. And both are not equal, as the world would like us to believe. One is wrong, the other is right. Even though the world would like us to think that whatever everybody thinks is right, is true for them, and so it is true. No, that's not biblical. That's the counsel of the wicked. One of those two is wrong. The other is right. We must choose one. Because there is no middle ground. There is no third way. There is no other way. Just the two. 
despite the many pluralities being manufactured in the world and in the false church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the glories of your word, so succinctly summarized in Psalm 1. How beautiful it is, how wonderful to know that your word is sufficient for us, for all the success and all the happiness and all the achievement we will ever need or require in this place. It's right there in your word. And your word has been lovingly preserved for us all these many centuries so that we would not miss our way. Help us, like John Wesley, to open it and to read it. And whatever he says to us, to follow it. Because it is the way that leads to heaven. Holy Spirit, continue to speak to us even after we've left this place. That we may meditate in your word. And that we may be like the tree planted by rivers of water. And all those tonight, O oh Lord, here or outside, in the neighborhood, who may be on the other way, on the path that ends as chaff driven by the wind, we pray for them. Have mercy, O oh Lord. And may your Spirit bring them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And may that same Holy Spirit help them to grow in the knowledge of him who has brought us into the glory and excellencies of his kingdom by his word. We give you thanks and praise. For we ask all these in the name of your only Son, who is our Lord and our Master, Jesus Christ. Amen.